The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Plunkett and welcome to Media Talk. On this week's show, we go to the Oxford Media Convention and reveal what Dolly the Sheep has to do with the future of press regulation. Plus, we bring you the latest from the standoff with Rupert Murdoch over the appointment of new editors of The Times and Sunday Times and find out why News International is taking football mobile. And we talk all things small screen and not just the National TV Awards as we are joined by The Guardian Guide's Rebecca Nicholson. This is Media Talk from The Guardian. I'm joined by The Guardian's head of media and tech, Dan Sabber, and by Media Guardian reporters, Mark Sweeney and Lisa O'Carroll. Welcome to the pod all. And Dan, this uh, rumour has it this might be your last pod. Surely not. Well, I, it's up to you, but I'm going to a new job at The Guardian, so that should be fun. And if you're desperate, I suppose I could always come back on. Well, always welcome, Dan. And uh, <laughs> I, I won't say a, always and, desperate. Yeah. And it's been, a ple- it's been a pleasure every day for the last, uh, uh, what, two years? You're a great oh, man, yes. you You're the best presenter, of course. Yeah, thanks. thanks for following the script, which I also write. Well, first up this week, we go to the Oxford Media Convention. Top of the agenda was the future of the press. Keen media watchers will know that the government has proposed a royal charter to provide legal backing for a new system of press regulation. The idea is that this would bypass the need for a swathe of new legislation regulating the press. The Conservatives remain opposed to statutory press regulation, unlike Labour, who have questioned the need for a royal charter. But how does this all relate to Dolly the Sheep? Here is Labour Deputy Leader Harriet Harman in conversation with Lisa in Oxford. I think that especially when the government have now acknowledged that the Royal Charter can't stand on its own, would have to have accompanying statute, well then why not just have statute? Why risk the cent- central core of it? I see the point. Well, the converse, but the converse is also true then. Why don't you go along with the government's plans for the Royal Charter backed by statute? Well, because... It's accompanied by statute. It's not really backed by statute. And that's the problem. But as you said, if, it's, if both achieve it has the same thing, no, you're the, just taking no, a different journey the to the same charter, destination. Yeah, but the Royal Charter has to fly. And it is like Dolly the Sheep. It might look like a sheep, but we don't know whether it can do all the things that a normal sheep would do. So, Dan, the Royal Charter idea, this was the brainchild of um, Oliver Letwin which seems to be the uh, sort of the, um, uh, I don't know, it seems to sort of have some, some backing behind it. Or it's, it's, the, it's the solution of the moment, let's it's say. Baroque, we've got on this crazy journey, it's created this Baroque smat structure of madness. It is the just becoming the daftest idea going. Every time, you know, Oliver Letwin seems to sort of been handed the job. So David Cameron says on Leveson Day, there shall not be a bill. And Oliver Letwin sort of says, there shall not be a, a sort of a, a press regulation bill and so Oliver Letman goes away to try and create a structure to you know kite mark the new PCC and he says well it's got to be a verifier and it's got to be you know sit on top of the PCC as reformed if you like and then we've got to make it solid so we'll back it by a royal charter like the BBC is governed by one but we've got to back up the royal charter so we've got to have a bill to entrench the royal charter to entrench the body that entrenches the PCC nobody knows what's going on it's just ridiculous so we're going to, you know, a party that says it didn't want to have a bill is now going to put in a bill which can be amended by MPs. The idea is bonkers. It should be dropped. And it's extraordinary that someone as clever as Oliver Letwin has got himself in a right tangle. And it's so complicated that Harriet Harman is reduced to inexplicable metaphors to explain it, thereby sort of dampening our insight further. It, none of this makes any sense. It, and, and I just do not see 
how or why you know it is necessary and if anything is necessary and this is every day that goes by it's playing into Labour's hands Labour looked totally wrong-footed on Leveson Day Cameron came out with the message the press wanted to hear and I think probably arguably the right message no you know no, no press regulation law and now I think if a vote came before the House of the Commons the Tories have made so little progress and got crazier and crazier with their scheme uh, I wonder if the Labour plus the Liberals and a few rebel Tories might have it and we might be a bit more likely to have some kind of Leveson law if you will of much wider application than a royal charter. Well, uh, John, there are two other interesting points on this. We got further insight on this question of whether the Labour Party were going to force a vote on Leveson, which they had told us they would do if there was no agreement by the end of January. That's now been put back to a opposition day that they will find um, in February. So they've kind of backtracked and and bought themselves some time. In fact, she agreed when pressed that they haven't ruled out a royal charter. But if they do and there is no agreement, they are banking on the Labour Party and the Lib Dems voting against it. So we'll be at another sort of milestone with, and have come to no conclusion. The second thing I was going to say was there was an interesting and a rare refreshing voice at the conference, which was a woman from Index 9, Article 19, I beg your pardon. And she said there was an awful lot of energy being wasted on its process. She said there are plenty of threats to freedom of the press all around the world, but also in the UK. And the people aren't paying attention to those. They're paying far much attention to this process and she mentioned the Digital Economy Act, which I hadn't heard of before, shame to say. You, you do wonder <clears throat> how hollow and how political this debate has become. And as well as Dolly the Sheet, there was another name mentioned uh, in Oxford, Lisa, and this was a, a chap called Sir David Normington, who um, has been lined up for a key role in ensuring a new press watchdog is robustly independent and free of influence from editors and politicians. Um, yeah. I hear the rustle of, uh, <laughs> I hear the rustle of newspapers here. Right. Yeah, he's, um, uh, who is he and what's he going to do? He is a career civil servant. He's former permanent secretary to the Home Office, worked under Charles Clark and under John Reid, who famously said when he was permanent secretary that the Home Office wasn't fit. It wasn't a fit and proper office. He is a man who somebody I spoke to, a policy wonk who I met out in the coffee break, who said he, if you're looking for a good Sir Humphrey, he was him. Um, basically, he um, now runs. He's the civil service commissioner, and he's also the commissioner for public appointments. So he's outside the government departments he's on a quango and he basically oversees um all senior um appointments to public service and quangos and david hunt who is the chairman of the pcc lord hunt um has been talking to him and he has agreed to come on board to advise on the process to set up the independent panel appointments panel which will establish the board of the pcc so it's the first step in establishing a robust new press regulator because the criticism in the past was it was Pressboff who determined who was on that board and Pressboff is basically the newspapers. So the Leveson has, has recommended a new board without serving editors, without politicians. And this guy is considered completely impartial, not in anybody's pocket. Um, so it sounds like he'll be a great man for the job, but it is only the first a very, very small step in setting up a new regulator. Dan, where are the newspapers in all of this? Where, where do the editors stand and what's, the, what's their input? What's their input now? I think getting increasingly worried, but 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 not not doing so publicly. I mean, there was an exchange of letters a week or so ago. I think uh, Peter Wright, former editor of the Man on Sunday, now Associated Newspapers, sort of um, man sort of negotiating with government on these sort of post Leveson matters. Uh, Writing to Oliver Letwin and writing to government, expressing his unhappiness with the sort of development with, with developments. And I think you, if you were to talk to any Fleet Street editor or any senior executive, you know, they would say the same thing. They don't worried about the direction that Oliver Letwin's going. Don't really understand it. Uh, thought they had a clear steer from the Conservatives, and now are and now not at all sure. 
And I think that if Letwin really sort of goes down the road of having a royal charter backed up by statute that is supposed to reinforce the new look PCC, I think there are some publications that might say, we don't want to be part of this. And then the whole thing unravels and we're back to square one. And, and then the whole, well, it depends. It depends how big the publications are. I mean, if it's like Private Eye, then the, the, you know the system can manage without Private Eye being in it. But if it's uh, you know, if it were to be uh, any national newspaper, then the system then we'd be back to square one. And the thing that not the thing that is the thing that really worries newspapers is how the hell does this arbitration unit work? Will it just attract a whole load of ambulance chasing lawyers? who will act for complainants who previously would be happy with a correction or an apology in a paper, but now are being told they get compensation. Um, and the other thing is exemplary damages. Harriet Harman just blithely referred to exemplary damages as a carrot um, in um, Oxford yesterday, and yet it's a huge problem for newspapers. OK, well, also in Oxford this week, Culture Minister Ed Vasey called on B-Sky B to scrap the millions of pounds it currently charges public service broadcasters, including the BBC, to carry TV and radio channels on its pay TV lineup. Vasey said that it had to be a level playing field for PSBs, and that's uh, channels 1 to 5, in case you didn't know, because they don't have to be carried on Virgin Media, or they don't have to be paid to be carried on Virgin Media. Mark, what's this all about? Sky makes about £10 million in uh, transmission fees from those PSBs at the minute. Why do they have to pay Sky and not Virgin, and and what do they get in return? Well, the issue's been around for a couple of years. It was at the Media Guardian Edinburgh TV Festival that Mark Thompson decided he was going to throw some petrol on the embers and turn it into a bit of a political bonfire. He came out and he actually used quotes by Rupert Murdoch. He, he didn't attribute them to him at the time, mentioning in the States how uh, Murdoch had wanted to do the same thing and get retransmission fees for his channels and turned it around and said, well, Sky, on this basis, you should actually be paying us tens of millions of pounds. It's actually the shoes on the other foot. So up until a year ago when Sky reduced them, the PSPs were paying about 25 million. Sky's reduced it, it's now about 11 million and the B pays about 5 or 6 million. The argument goes that they shouldn't have to pay any at all, that 50 to 70% of prime time viewing on Sky is actually these channels, so why are they paying it? Under Sky's rules, it is fair and reasonable and non-discriminatory payments set by Ofcom on the basis that Sky's invested tens of millions, hundreds of millions even, in its pay TV platform, so it should get a service for these channels to be carried. Now, Ed Vasey, possibly because he didn't have any useful to say about a white paper or communications act decided to hang the main point of his speech on this and he said let's get rid of this in the next 12 to 18 months i don't see why anyone should be paying for anything so sky is saying well without us uh, you know your channels uh, people wouldn't better watch your channels and bbc are telling sky well hang on a minute a lot of your viewers spend a load of their time watching our channels so therefore you should pay us well David Elstein is a former Sky boss, also a chief executive of Channel 5, of course. Um, he touched on this issue in Oxford, talking to Mark. All broadcasters who want access to the Sky platform have to be treated identically. It, it's actually a requirement from the regulators that carriage fees should be uh, fair, reasonable and non-discriminatory. In other words, every channel has to pay exactly the same. Look, I've run five channels on Sky. I know what it's like. It's expensive, uh, but you've got no choice because it's a regulated charge. There's absolutely no reason why Channel 5 should get a free ride because it's a public service broadcaster, let alone the BBC. You know, what do they want next? Free telephones, free taxes, free electricity? Some would say, though, that much of Sky's traffic or views or eyeballs comes from the PSB's channels and that actually Sky should be paying them a lot of money, up to 50 to 70% of prime time viewing perhaps? Well it would be fascinating to put it to the test. Why don't 
all these broadcasters voluntarily give up their entitlement to their place on the EPG and negotiate with Sky. All of them would lose their places on the EPG. One, two, three, four, and five would all go. Uh, the BBC has already said it will not ever try and claim retransmission fees itself. It's only concerned with the fees it pays for carriage. ITV is remarkably silent. Channel 5 would have a heart attack uh, because Sky would be charging them. Because if you come off uh, the EPG in 10 million homes, you might as well disappear. ITV may find that a proportion of its viewing that's dependent on Sky is rather too uncomfortable to put at risk. So my guess is that you'll have stony silence from Channel 3, Channel 4 and Channel 5 on this issue. That was David Elstein there. Dan, the, the privileged positions that the uh, PSPs have at the top of the EPG, is, is that in any way related to these payments that they pay to Sky? Well, well, there's a number of interlocking issues here, but, I mean, the privileged position is due to the fact they sort of uh, have this so-called PSP status, so they get they get sort of to be channels one to five, but but in, in return for which anyone can carry them on sort of any platform. I think there was a, at one point there was an internet TV service which sort of was able to sort of broadcast channels one to five, uh, 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 you know, down the phone lines as best it could because... and, and None of the broadcasters are doing anything to stop it because they've got to sort of, you know, in return for the privileged access to be at the top of the list, you've got a sort of must must broadcast, you know, uh, 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 must carry obligation, if you like. I mean, what are you saying there? If you like, if it was Channel Five, then uh, they they could really be damaged because the Channel Five, you know, is, is no longer a you know is no longer a public service broadcaster in this context. Then it could go Sky could list it anywhere, and and then there would be a commercial negotiation between Sky and Channel Five, and and at that point. Channel 5 might be paying Sky because they might say, well, we want to be fifth and we'll pay £20 million a year or whatever we think it's worth because it protects our viewers and you know, Sky may, may or may not take the same view. However, I, I, I cannot believe that the listing of channels on Sky, on Virgin, on anywhere else will not be regulated uh, you know, in some way, shape or form. And I think the idea that Sky could use its position, or Virgin, but Sky could use its position to favour its services over uh, unfairly over other broadcasters, that, that wouldn't be on either. There'd just be an awful lot more lawyers' fees being paid out and an awful lot more argument. I think the current system mostly works well, although it does strike me as a little bit rich. The Sky is charging you know, ITV and Channel 4 uh, fees for content that their viewers value, and Sky is Partly built its service, partly built its service on, on their content, but also obviously investment and sport and so on. So uh, you know, there's the swings and roundabouts here. A uh, last point that Mark touched on. He's uh, Mark's obviously right to say I think that Ed Vasey had not much to say about his communications white paper, so he had to sort of kick up another fight. Uh, also, there are votes, or at least there are points in government still for bashing parts of the sort of Murdoch empire, which is an interesting point uh, uh, if the Murdoch empire is hoping for for favours elsewhere. Uh, and Lisa, what's the situation with uh, channels like B- uh, BBC, for instance, on TV platforms in Ireland? BBC don't have a uh, top. They're not number one. RT is number one and RT2 is number two. But they had to really fight for that, I remember. <clears throat> and BBC is like number 24, 25. It's like page three of the EPG. TV3, which used to be part owned by ITV, is number three. Channel four is, is, is number four. So, But that, that comes back to when the BBC had a row with Sky over encryption so there's another element to it as well do you remember Greg Dyke decided not to pay for the encryption anymore and they were going to go free to air and take the risk of being sued by Hollywood and other rights holders who would have been worried about spillover into other territories but yeah in Ireland um, the BBC is paid for by the cable company 
and Mark Vasey, uh, Vasey said that if they don't sort it out, he'll, he'll pro- probably legislate. But um, it's hard to see it coming to that old situation one day where you know they disappear from the top of e- the EPG in some sort of Mexican standoff. It's, it's not going to happen. No, it's highly unlikely. I mean, it's down to, to a few million pounds a year. I mean, it's not to be sniffed at in these days of cuts upon more cuts, but um, there are much larger issues that they are likely to head to something as serious as, as regulation. I think it might have sounded good as a as a soundbite to say that there might be a, a bit of stick action, but there's unlikely to be. Well, that's enough Oxford for now. If you want to read more about the conference, please go to mediaguardian.co.uk. And if you want more Oxford, then Lewis is on at ITV at 9pm on Monday. This March, we're holding our biggest media conference in London, the Guardian Changing Media Summit. Join us on the 21st and 22nd of March to rub shoulders with the biggest names of today and the brightest stars of tomorrow. And an early bird ticket will get you 20% off. To find out more, head to guardian.co.uk slash changing media summit. Next, we turn our attention to News International and the new editor of The Times. Or is there a new editor of The Times? Dan, this is a bit like that Hollywood film, which you may have seen, with um, Alec Baldwin and Meryl Streep. It's complicated. Yeah, but, you know, Rupert Murdoch finds a way of cutting through it, doesn't he? I mean, you've got these... Times of Sunday Times are unique on Fleet Street. They have this slightly bizarre system where there's this independent-ish, not well, you know, lunch-oriented committee of so-called indep- you know, national directors who have to approve uh, the appointment of an editor. And uh, after James Harding's sort of sudden resignation, they've tried to make themselves look good in public or they've cutting up a bit rough and they, they are n- were not approving Rupert Murdoch's nominees for each job, John Witherow at The Daily and... Uh, long-serving editor of the Sunday Times, of course, and Martin Ivans uh, at the Sunday. And so, you know, we've had an impasse for, well, James quit in, in mid-December, and we've had an impasse for knocking on a month, and uh, the director still won't sort of bite. And so what's Rupert done is made them act, you know, acting editor of each title, respectively. And no doubt if John Witherow wants to appoint a deputy at the Times, he'll be, I don't know, he'll be acting deputy editor or other such, you know, other such entertainments. But uh, there's no difference, really, in fact, I think, between an acting editor and an editor. And I think uh, uh, if I was a reporter on The Times, I'd be sort of, uh, you know, John Witherow told me what to do, I'd certainly be doing it. So, I mean, this sort of, you know, it sort of leaves a slightly nonsense situation where you've got a you know, bunch of independent directors who've kind of been ignored. You know, they claim, you know, they're claiming to be very anxious. They believe there's a sort of merge, secret merger plan to bring the titles together. That's forbidden by the 1981 undertakings that um, Murdoch signed when he bought The Times and they're also, you know, cover this point about the point of editors. So uh, they're worried about that. Murdoch and News International says he's got no plans to do a merger. That may or may not be true, but for now, uh, you know, it isn't. You'd have to go to government. You'd have to go to government to get the undertakings varied, and and the whole situation is a sort of bit of a mess. The independent directors think there's a secret plan. You know, Murdoch and News Corp to merge. New- Murdoch and News Corp say there isn't. So the independent directors say, well, we won't ratify the appointment of an editor. So Murdoch says, I'll make him deputy editor anyway. I mean, I think all in all. Uh, Rupert's pretty much got what he wanted. Uh, uh, it's a little bit complicated, you know, for the cost of one word. And the independent directors, maybe they've bought themselves a bit of PR credibility. But uh, the sooner this nonsense is over, the better with. Also this week at News International, we saw the opening of The Sun's new TV studios by none other than Arnold Schwarzenegger. And News International signed a deal with the Premier League to show football highlights on mobile and the internet. That's uh, on The Sun, The Times and The Sunday Times websites. It's a three-year deal worth more than £20 million. Uh, Mark, this, this is all about mobile. 
Well, Mike Darcy's uh, he's barely been in a month warming the seat, hasn't he? He comes over from Sky, where he was COO for a long time, very successful. He's been the main man on, on probably as many as five Premier League TV rights deals, and he also spearheaded a lot of where their, their digital strategy's gone, uh, things like what you see now in Sky Go. Chief exec of News. He's now moved over to, to be chief exec, and um, and here we go, immediately, straight out of the blocks with, with a deal. Um, they're obviously sealed bids, so he outbid uh, everyone else who put their money on the table. Now you, you would you would assume that potentially with with Sky's ambitions that they might have been in there and and, and others, um, those who would be able to probably make a lot more money, a lot easier out of it, having had a lot of experience in this area. But no, it's NI, a newspaper publisher who, who's picked up the rights and is now going to try and monetize them. It's been touted around a bit as potentially a game break, uh, game breaker, a game changer, and maybe it is a new model. It has caused a, a lot of surprise in the market and ruffled a few feathers. Um, whether or not they have the model to back it up, we'll, we'll have to see. Dan, the, the figures are. Well, it's all small fry compared to the amount of money you pay for, for live Premier League rights, of course. But at the same time, as Mark says, it's been touted as a game changer. Uh, what it is, is eight 30-second clips of key moments during the match, which you can actually show during the match. That's unless it's the Saturday afternoon kickoff. So it's not quite there yet. But, you know, if you've seen these clips on the mobile, then it's got knock-on effects, not just for, for Sky's uh, highlights, which it shows later, but also, for instance, BBC One's Match of the Day. These are, these are real-time live uh, highlights, as it, it were. Uh, you know, whether I make money is a really interesting sort of conversation. I mean, I think what they're paying a year uh, uh, is sort of roughly the price of a sort of single Premier League game live at the moment. So that sort of might, that puts it in context in terms of the va- in terms of the value of the live rights. But of course, in newspaper economics, this is you know this is big money, and I mean, you know, really big sports moments might spend the very low tens of millions on its sports budget. So to add in this extra cost of a few million pounds that we spread across the Times and the Sun and the Sunday Times, of course, you know, is significant. Look, the basic trend that everyone's seeing is that mobile use on Saturday afternoons is now outweighing desktop use. So all newspaper groups say exactly the same thing: that mobile is our number one mode of entry, if you like, into our content uh, at sort of 4.45. That's because of football, of course. So that's the sort of on-the-face-fit opportunity, but I don't know if they're going to monetize it. I mean, you know, for the Times titles, they could put it behind their paywall and say sort of get your goals here first, perhaps, but they're very tight 30-second clips. They're very tight clips, and I think people will still watch Match of the Day quite cheerfully and, and you know, and, and the rest. So I don't think there's an issue for Match of the Day. I don't think they're quite that, that compellingly packed up. Is it is that, that that compelling a property for the sun i don't know maybe will they try and go down a pay strategy that i mean as mark said that's mike darcy's background so what is it i don't know two pound a week get all your goals here i mean i'm sure they'll try and build something around that and they've got an app remember the sun charge 4.99 yeah. or something for an app you could yeah. you bet your bottom dollar that the price of that's but, going to go up yeah so i think instinctively that's right and you've mentioned the tv studio where the governator uh, you know schwarzenegger was there so they're looking at more they're looking at a bit more broadcast i think there's some talk about some rumours I think that some of the Sun Sports reporters are having to sort of you know be prepared to do some sort of pre-game video so on the face of it there's an opportunity but we've all been here thousands of times before it's really difficult for newspaper groups to produce credible mobile television I, there's not really an ad market of any great size to mobile I don't know if people really want to pay for it so I, it, it's an interesting move but I wouldn't be surprised if in three years time you know someone else picks up these same set of rights and um, uh, makes their own mistakes. Also this week, the latest Web ABC figures are out. Mark, give us one winner and one loser, if you would, in reverse order. 
Well, unfortunately, we'll start, we'll start with the loser. Poor old Metro lost about a third of its traffic. Uh, however, this was primarily due to the fact that they had a web redesign um, to mobile optimize their website back in early December. So uh, hence their figures, all these sorts of things about how, how you then, when you reconnect and things optimize with searches, etc., meant that they, uh, they lost a hell of a lot of traffic. They reckon it's sort of recovering and, and, and that by March will be back to normal. Trinity Mirror actually ran into the same problem about a year ago, um, and it makes for bad headlines, but uh, it's it's all for a good cause when you're investing. So it's probably not a fundamental issue there. Winners were both Trinity and uh, Trinity Mirrors websites and Independent had um, double-digit increases, which is not bad going. December's not usually considered a particularly strong month. Uh, I don't know the exact drivers behind that, but they did pretty well and they should be, should be pleased. Uh, and also this week, uh, Dan, uh, uh, latest results from Apple and iPhone news. Yeah, they didn't quite sell, I mean, they didn't quite sell as many sort of products as expected. And I think for the first time, you know, we could see, I think, you know, Apple not outperforming Wall Street expectations, slightly disappointing sort of product, you know, to the iPhone sales, you know, good tablet growth. Um, and, And so I suppose it's sort of... It's not quite the beginning of the end because everything's going up still, but but the beginning of the end of outperformance. And I mean, Google had that problem several months, you know, had the the same problem several months ago. And that's always something to bear in mind, as we talked earlier, but, you know, mobile being the new, 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 new thing. But, you know, suddenly some other category of slightly different device, seven inch tablet will come along and maybe sort of blow that away. And suddenly everyone will be redesigning their their offerings and thinking about a slightly different strategy. So. Uh, there's even the prospect that one day Apple is not, you know, or even the, the sense that Apple is not invincible. Well, it's odd's law, isn't it? Just after I bought myself an iPhone 5. Well, my thanks, of course, to Mr. Dan Sabah and to Lisa O'Carroll and to Mark Sweeney. And I'm joined now by a very special guest. It's the Guardian Guides, Rebecca Nicholson. Rebecca, how are you? I'm very well, thanks. Did you enjoy the National TV Awards or were you watching something else? I was watching something else. I was watching the Great British Bake Off. But it was for comic relief, so I feel like I've done a good deed. Did you donate? Uh, No. But I thought about baking. Is that not the message? Yeah, it's halfway there, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) Right, well, I did mention the TV Awards, so we should cover them off. I was uh, locked in a press room, Entrance G, the O2 Arena, for three hours last night. It was a great pleasure. Anton Deck won for the 12th year running Best Entertainment Presenters. Who'd have thought it? What have they done this year other than I'm a Celebrity? Is it just for I'm a Celebrity that they win? I think so, yes. Well, probably Britain's Got Talent if you go back far enough. Yes. Does it reflect sort of paucity of entertainment talent out there or is it more the paucity of ITV viewers' imagination who who vote for these things? Possibly. I'm I'm kind of loathe. A lot of people criticise these awards. um, Not thinking Yeah, well, in that exact manner, but... People vote for it, and this is what they watch, and the popular things win, and I don't really have a problem with that. Mrs Brown's boys, talking of not having problems with the winners at the National TV Awards. Another triumph, and this is a hugely popular BBC One but sitcom. But this is the thing. So us critics tend to be sniffy about it. We tend not to like it. I've, I've sat through episodes of this. My family are big fans, and I, I've tried to watch it with them, and I don't enjoy it. I don't find it funny. I think it's a bit cheap, maybe, with its... With its jokes, getting um, more expensive now. It's one that and award, well, yeah. exactly. It's it's huge, and lots of people watch it, and lots of people enjoy it. So f- it's fine to acknowledge it. I don't think it's a problem. Bawdy doesn't do it justice. It's really, really rude. It's a lot of swearing for primetime BBC One, but it's hidden swearing because they're saying feck, but they're not. If you listen closely, yeah. that's really not what they're saying. Yeah, no, it's just just yeah. full on, uh, full on. Yeah. Well, you didn't get four-letter words on primetime BBC One on my day. Well, not on a weekly basis anyway. In fact, uh, 
the most uh, what was the most risque program in my day? I don't know. Are you being served? Maybe or or maybe a particular episode of Faulty Towers, Rebecca. You see the link that I've done there. That was a there. great link. Thank you very much. It was back on BBC One this week, but not in its original form. No, it had uh, certain racist words edited out. To some controversy, people complained that it should have been aired in its original form. But I actually went I, I went online to find out what these words that they'd missed out were, and I think it was airing at seven o'clock at night. There's no, there's absolutely no way that these words could have been used. I don't think it was about changing what they were saying. It was just that it was impo- it would be impossible to air those words at this time. Yeah, this was an exchange between Basil Fawlty and the Major. But uh, I'm yes. with you. I've got some sympathy with the BBC. They're on a no-win situation. If they hadn't edited it, you can imagine the, uh, the sort of minor media scandal that would have resulted. But they do edit it, and a minor media scandal results. Yes. I think I'd rather that than <laughs> them, them air these words at 7 o'clock in the evening. Well, that's enough uh, controversy and national TV awards, frankly. What, uh, what won the, the weekly uh, Rebecca Nicholson uh, television awards uh, this week? Well, I, I have been watching the Great British Bake Off, hence missing the television awards. It's the comic relief ver- version. Well, it's the celebrity version, and ordinarily, I think, for some reason, I think Celebrity Come Dine With Me has kind of killed off the celebrity format because they keep wheeling people out who are less and less famous. And their ratings have dropped off a cliff. Yeah, and it seems like there's one every week, and now I can't really tell the difference between a Celebrity Come Dine With Me and a regular Come Dine With Me. So I'm not a huge fan of getting celebrities into booster format but actually I think this works really well because it brings a new element into it which is like the early stages of MasterChef where you have cooks or in this instance bakers but chefs who aren't really very good alongside the ones who can cook and there's an element of fun to that seeing things kind of fall apart and collapse and baking go wrong doesn't happen that often on the bake-off they they do show the odd calamity but it's not really very common because the people they've chosen are capable bakers. So now we've got celebrities, some of whom can bake, some of whom really can't, and you get more of that kind of early MasterChef calamitous mishap stage, and I I enjoy it. We love a disaster. So which celebrity had the crummiest cake? I'm trying to think now. Who did a bad one? I enjoyed I tell you, uh, Julia Bradbury was on last night, and she wasn't terrible, but she was very, very competitive. And I, I sympathised, because I feel like in that situation I'd probably be the same, but that was very satisfying to watch someone really want it, and it didn't quite work out. They had some disastrous eclairs. Well, I can't forgive Bradbury for taking over Countryfile, frankly, but that's between me and her. I mean, that sounds personal. Uh, right, what else? what else this week, Rebecca? Uh, well, ne- on next week's TV... Yep. Derek, Ricky Gervais's... Derek! Ricky Gervais's uh, initial pilot has been picked up for a full series because it got great ratings. This is one of the worst television shows I've ever seen. Oh, good. It's extraordinarily bad. It defies belief it's so bad. I can't work out how it's been made. Other than the fact that it got ratings because it's a Ricky Gervais show, which it, it must be the only reason that people watched it. So what's the show about? So uh, Ricky Gervais plays Derek. He is a worker in a care home for the elderly. Ricky Gervais kind of juts his jaw and shrugs his shoulders and and talks in a funny voice. And it's all very peculiar. But the, the strange thing about this series is that instead of going for... It was more of a kind of strange mix of slapstick and drama last time. And they've tried to up the drama aspect this time so there's now a plot where council inspectors are closing down the care home so you get great comedy lines like 90% of care home residents die within six months of being rehomed <laughs> it's just and I wonder if these that's I wonder a if any basis in reality yeah, <laughs> I mean yeah. it's just it's, I think what they've tried to do is go for a getting on sort of 
comedy where it has a real political point but is actually done with getting on is done with tact and with care that's the joe brown show on bbc4 on bbc4 which is fantastic and which really makes its point well this is just dreadful it's 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 not funny it's so overly dramatic that that's the only time you laugh i think when the drama kind of is so over the top that you end up thinking this is absurd like that line about the people dying when they leave that shouldn't be funny but it is the laughs come in the wrong places it's just really it's a truly dreadful show and what else is coming up next week rebecca there's an installment of storyville called the queen of versailles which i think it got a cinematic release actually but now it's going to be on bbc4 and it's a documentary that started off as being about the biggest home ever in america this couple were building the biggest home in America. It was a replica of Versailles. It's over the top. There's a ballroom, a cinema, a bowling alley. It's ridiculous. Fortunately for the documentary maker, the crash happened. So all of a sudden, this property magnet who's making, who's building his house, loses everything. And everything starts to kind of fall apart. They can't move into this home that they're building. They start to have to live on a budget. There are kind of dogs running around everywhere. And it's a really brilliant documentary. It would be very easy to make these characters villains and they really resist the urge to do that. And what's nice about it is that they're not unlikable people. You kind of, you end up sympathising with them, which is really bizarre and unexpected. But I think it, it, it's turned into a sort of parable of, uh, consumerism and it's really brilliantly done. Sort of mega structures meets grand designs meets fantastic enormous dollar per jeopardy. Yes, with the next beauty queen as its guiding voice. <laughs> and that's on BBC4 next week. Yes. Rebecca, thank you very much. Alas, there's no time for the Media Monkey quiz this week. Sorry, Eddie Mayer, but you can leave all your comments on our Facebook wall or our blog. Or alternatively, tweet me at johnplunkett149. My thanks to all this week's contributors, who were, in reverse order, Rebecca Nicholson, Dan Saber, Mark Sweeney and Lisa O'Carroll. Media Talk is produced by Mr Matt Hill. Thanks for listening. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.